Welcome here this morning. It's good to be together again on the Lord's Day and have His Word in front of us. If you would open your Bible to Psalm 92, that's where we're going to be addressing today. Psalm 92. First, I want to read it to us. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the, the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. And grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray. Father, we join together to worship You this morning, to bow down before You and declare that You alone are God. There is none like You. We praise You that we get to be rightly related to You in Christ. That You created us and You have sustained us and You were patient with us while we were yet sinners and In Christ, you have redeemed us. So we worship you this morning and we praise you. And as we come to your word this morning, we seek to be instructed by your word, by your spirit, about the blessings that are ours in Christ, the blessings that are ours because we get to be rightly related to you and him. Father, as we speak about rest this morning, I pray that you indeed would guide us to that rest, direct us, that we might have rest in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, Woody and Stephen and I got to go to a retreat 
this week and um, a conference, and we got to hear great speakers and got to get away and be together and things like that. And one of the blessings, and there were numerous blessings, one of the blessings was that we were separated from the news for that while because we were we were busy morning, noon, and night, and we didn't uh, uh, know what was going on in the world and and uh, things like that. And there is blessing in that. And so I come back here and I look at the news and I think, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's, there are things happening and I kind of forgot all about them. Uh, in, with the state that the world is in right now, where can we go to find rest? Where can you go to find rest? Well, the conference we were at was very restful. Uh, and it was restful for a number of reasons. But... Where can we find rest while we are in this world that's spinning the way it is, that has uh, the, the problems, the challenges, the difficulties, the enemies that it does, the hardship, the, the unanswerable questions? Where can we go to find rest from that? Because if you don't find rest, you will find that your brain is always spinning on these topics. You'll find that you're worrying about something, whatever that thing is for you that's of great concern, whether it's uh, political or whether it's social or whether it's some other thing, your brain will continue to spend on it. Uh, where where can you find rest? You know, can you stick your head in the sand and find rest that way? Not really. You can kind of avoid some of those things for a while, but they're still going on. Can you find rest by just identifying what is the best course of action for you to change the world and then devote your life to changing the world and in that you have rest? I don't know if that really works either, pursuing a cause to the end and making our life about that cause. I don't know if that really provides rest. Where can we go in our day and age to find real, true, lasting rest? Well, our passage today addresses this topic. You'll notice the kind of the title there, or um, I can't remember the word for it, but it says a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. Now that, uh, I have a title above that one in my Bible that the editors of the Bible that I use put in there, and it says uh, something different. But that does just a decision, the elders, uh, the elders, <laughs> editors, those are different. Those are not the same. The editors made when they were putting together my particular Bible, they happened to do that. But the, the words, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath, that's maybe a part of the original, or at least it was put together very, very early on. And so the idea there is that this is not just comments by some editors or something like that. This is a part of the text. And so if you were to study Hebrew and you were to open up your Hebrew Bible, uh, often that starts with verse 1 at the beginning of that word. And so um, it's important. It kind of comes with the text. And so, of course, we learned that it's a psalm, which didn't surprise us because we opened to the psalms, and there we found a psalm. But what's interesting is it says a song for the Sabbath. A song for the Sabbath. Well, of course, Sabbath is that day of the week where uh, you join Together, you, you come to the temple. You, you know, in, 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 uh, in the Old Testament, there was no work to be done. There were particular rules and things about how it was supposed to be a day set apart as a day of rest, holy to the Lord. The Sabbath means rest, basically. And so I think there's something more than just, oh, this is a song we're to sing on the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath of 
rest. It's a Sabbath. Uh, it's a song for rest, for Sabbath rest. And so I think as we work through this, we're going to see that he's talking about where we find rest. This was a song that would be in their hymnal, as it were, and they would come together on uh, the Sabbath and they would uh, sing, among many other things, they would sing this, and in it they would find rest. So our goal today is to look and see where it is we can find this rest, this rest that we need. If you listen to commentators, if you watch the news, it, it just becomes all-consuming. And, and you can find that there are people who live their entire lives on these issues, whether it's political or social or, or economic, or, and, and it just it becomes all-consuming. Where can we find rest for ourselves? And so that's what the psalmist is going to point us uh, to today. And I want to notice uh, that uh, you don't have an outline in your bulletin, and that was partially on purpose. As I said, we were away this week, and so I didn't really have time to put, put one together. But I'll try and uh, give you a, a breakdown of, of how this psalm uh, plays out so that you can get an idea. First of all, there's this uh, a, a great celebration, but it's in very general terms. But there's this great celebration for the first four verses. We read, first of all, that it is good to praise the Lord. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. It is a good thing. And it's good for a couple of reasons. It's good, uh, first of all, because it's good for God's creatures to recognize we exist under Him. We exist because of Him. We owe our next breath to Him. We owe our heartbeat to Him. We owe our very existence, the fact that we were created, we owe to Him. And so it's good for God's creation to recognize that they indeed are created and therefore dependent upon the Creator. So it's good for us to give thanks. It puts us in that right mindset. The second reason it's good to praise the Lord is because He deserves it. He deserves thanks. He deserves praise. He is at work to, to benefit us. He has blessed us in countless, countless ways. And He deserves thanksgiving. And so it's good to praise the Lord for those two reasons and more. But more than that, beyond that, in, we praise the Lord in different times and in different ways. He says, first of all, in verse 2, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. The idea there is all the time. It's not just when I do my morning devotions and before bed at night or something like that, though that, of course, would be good, but, but it's a figure of speech indicating always. There is no time of day that is not appropriate to praise God. And so we can praise God and ought to praise God in all those different times and also in different ways to the music of the lute and the harp and to the Melody of the lyre, even musically, entering into song that our our praise to God, our thanksgiving to Him often bursts into song. And sometimes you'll be meditating on what the Lord has done, on His goodness in your life, and, and song comes out. Maybe it comes out of your mouth, or maybe it's just in your mind. And certainly when we're together, this is what we're doing. We're joining together to praise God even in song. And so it's good to praise the Lord in different times, in different ways, because of what He does. Because of what He does. 
For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. God is at work, and we are blessed by the work that he does. It's pretty unspecific here, and he's going to get a little bit more specific as he goes on, but, but right now it's kind of general. You think about the fact that God didn't have to make us. He wasn't lonely, and so he needed a buddy, and so he made humanity. And no, he was, he was perfect in himself and, and independent, self-sufficient. He didn't need us, but he thought us up, and he created us. That blessing we, it, it, we don't deserve. He decided to create us. That's one of the great things he does. And, of course, he sustains us. He gives us what we need to continue life. We have breath. Our heart keeps beating. Food and water. He takes care of us. He sustains us. He gives us uh, many blessings like family and, and people around us. Are, are we really aware of how much we owe to him? The things that we have, we have because he gave them to us. I got to see the sunrise this morning. He gave me that. What I have came from him. And of course, we find this expressed in Scripture, Hebrews 1.3. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So why are all things upheld? Why are all things working and running as they, as they ought to? The universe is spinning and clicking the way it's supposed to by the word of his power. He upholds all things. Or Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. We get to have being because of him. I don't think we quite realize the depth of gratitude we ought to have towards God for the things that he's done for us. All things in our bodies and our universe work because he makes it so. The laws of physics, laws of logic, that all comes from him. All of humanity ought to give thanks for what he has done for every one of us because we all owe him our very being. The fact that we get to draw another breath is a gift from him. And so there's this great celebration in the first, first four verses there, just a general celebration, acknowledging uh, the, the praise that God deserves for what he has done for all of us. But then we move into the next section and we begin to see a differentiating uh, realization or a differentiating awareness that there are different groups within these who receive these blessings of verse, verses 1 through 4. And so we move on to uh, the next couple of verses, verses 5 and 6. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. First, these great works. How great are your works, O Lord! You think about even just God's work with the nation of Israel. He set his sights on a man, specifically Abraham, and determined, determined to bring him and his offspring into a special relationship with himself to make them his people. He was faithful to Isaac and to Jacob through their hardships, through their failings. He remained faithful to Joseph as he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And then centuries later, he was faithful to Moses and his generation that he brought out of the chains of slavery from Egypt. Again, to bring them into a special relationship with himself, but this time as a nation. And God was faithful to provide for them during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 
And that God was faithful to bring them into the promised land and drive out their enemies from before them. God has been faithful to his people. His works, whether they're mundane or whether they're miraculous, are beyond great. And they point to the greatness of his person, who he is and what he is really like. God is great. He does great things. And he ought to be greatly praised for those great things. And so the psalmist right here in verse 5 says, How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. He has deep plans. He has profound plans. The ESV just translates it very simply. Your thoughts are very deep. Uh, The NIV, how profound are your thoughts? I think that's a little bit better. The Net Bible, I think, hits it on the head. Your plans are very intricate. This isn't just the things that God knows. This isn't just talking about how much uh, information there is in his brain. This is talking about how he has created all things to work together and specifically how he relates to humanity and the plan that is involved in that. So he is talking here about not just God is very smart, God is very wise in the abstract. He's talking about his wisdom as we can see it in the way he governs the world the way he governs history, the way he works in the lives of individuals even. And as we progress through our psalm, we're going to see that there are three uh, basic um, relationships where we see this play out. We see God's wisdom at work. We see God's plan, his thoughts, and just how wise they are. But before we get there, before we move on to Uh, looking at those relationships, to looking at these these blessings that belong to us as God's children, we need to uh, note with the psalmist that they are, in fact, incomprehensible to the unbeliever. Look at verse 6. Now, I don't use this word. Okay, We talked about this in Sunday school. We talked about the same psalm. We have words in our household because we have small children that we don't use. And thus, as our kids get older, they still don't use these words. And this is one of them. The stupid man. Right? Now, the fool, okay, I can kind of go with that. But uh, the brutish man um, is is another translation that uh, that I like better just because I can say it in my household. (laughs) And don't, don't get my kids in trouble or get in trouble with my kids. Right? The brutish man, a senseless man, the New American Standard has it. So does the NIV. A dullard. I think is is not a bad word, though we don't really use that one. Uh, but the, the, again, the Net Bible wins the day here, I think, with spiritually insensitive. Spiritually insensitive. Like a brute. When I was growing up, I did 4-H. And I would, uh, I had a steer, and I would, you know, I was supposed to exercise this steer, so I'd be walking with the steer, and I would talk to the steer, right? He couldn't care less. <laughs> He didn't interact a lot. He didn't correct me when I needed correcting, right? None of that, right? Because he's a brute. He doesn't have any idea the things I'm saying, right? And that's kind of the idea here. The brutish person, right? Someone who is spiritually insensitive, that he's not picking up what you're putting down, okay? Just because uh, not, it has nothing to do with intelligence or anything like that. It's that this person is spiritually insensitive. They're not aware. They're not able to take in that kind of spiritual information. Well, then, what's a fool? Well, when the Bible uses the term fool, it, it doesn't mean it as an insult, like we may, may be tempted to use that term. 
We're not, we're not calling into question someone's intelligence or something like that. Rather, in the Bible, the term fool is a moral judgment about a person's spiritual condition. They're, they're determined to live life as if there were no God. And so that means many things don't work. Many things get turned around backwards. Many value assessments are, are messed up because uh, this, the, the fool is the one who lives life as if there were no God. And we find that these two terms are, are uh, used quite a bit. Um, I'll read just a few psalms here, or excuse me, proverbs that give a, uh, a good kind of breadth of picture of what's going on here. Uh, proverbs 10.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a, glad, uh, uh, makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. This has nothing to do with the intelligence of the son. This is, this is about wisdom, living life as if God is really there versus foolishness, which is living life as if there were no God. It's not about intelligence here. Proverbs one twenty two. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Hate knowledge. Right? Not, not all knowledge. You know, they're, they're happy to get a degree and they're happy to learn some things. And, but, but knowledge about God, knowledge in light of God, knowledge concerning God, they hate that knowledge. They've not only not acquired knowledge, they actually stand against doing so. Proverbs 10.23, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. Wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. So there's a type of person that they actually laugh at doing wrong. Wrongdoing is a joke. It's funny. There are no consequences anyway. I may as well just do this. And if I get caught, the, the, the trouble I get in will be no big deal. It's a joke. Or Proverbs 10.18, whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. It's slanderous. Right? This isn't innocent. It has consequences. It leads a person places. Or perhaps Proverbs 13.19, a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. They're, these are people who are devoted and committed to abomination. Okay? Seeking it out. Going out of their way to pursue it, not likely to turn from it. And so he's describing extreme examples here. That's why he's using extreme language. But it's a similar notion, though less extreme, uh, we read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's as if they're on a different wavelength. It's like, it's like me talking to the steer or, or speaking a foreign language. It's not comprehensible. And these that's, that uh, the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 92, these are, are ones who are not not just unbelievers, they're, they're exceedingly wicked. They are his enemies. They have pursued their wickedness and their folly and their abomination against him. And so this is an extreme case that we're reading about here. But here's something that we need to note is a defining difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian sees the world around him and he recognizes the reality that the Lord is over it all. He sees the Lord's good and powerful hand in all of it. He realizes that God is indeed working all things together for his good, despite how things might appear now. The non-Christian sees the world around him, but he doesn't recognize these truths. He may not even recognize that the God of the Bible exists and is working. 
He may deny the existence of God altogether, or he may simply redefine the one true God some way to suit himself in his own image. A God who prefers the things he prefers and stands against the things he stands against, actually making himself to be God. Either way, the non-Christian's worldview does not begin with the God of the Bible. Does your worldview begin with the God of the Bible? Is that the very starting place for your thinking? What God says in His Word, how He presents Himself in His Word, the God of the Bible, as the starting place, as the launching point for your worldview, for your thinking. In your mind, is the reality of the Lord the most bedrock truth, the truth upon which all other truths and ideas are built? What's the bedrock of your thinking? What's at the very base upon which you build all other things? The psalmist says, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. That's where the Christian worldview begins, with God. And we move from there. And then he begins to look at uh, these three relationships that are cause for the believer to rejoice. And we're going to look at them together, but 7 through 14 are are, uh, those three relationships that we're going to look at. The first one is the relationship between the Lord and his enemies. The Lord and His enemies. Starting at verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. I love the way he begins that in verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish. Does that bug you? When you look at the world and you see the wicked and the evildoers and they flourish and they sprout and they grow everywhere and they seem to be doing great, that can weigh on you a little bit. When you you compare and you see, well, they're clearly wicked. They're clearly unbelievers. And not only that, they're pursuing it. They're pursuing evil and and abominations, all they can pursue. And they get away with it. Not only do they get away with it, they get rewarded for it. Right? They get more promotional deals. They get more book deals. They get richer. They get fatter. They get healthier. Fat in biblical terms is a sign of health. (laughs) They're getting healthier. How can this be, right? This is something... That, uh, that, that weighs on our minds and, and uh, something that weighed on the psalmist's mind. David in Psalm 73 really wrestles with this. If, if this is something that you struggle with, when, uh, when, when you look at the world and you think, you know, they keep getting away with it. They keep getting rewarded for doing evil. And it just bugs you. It just makes you angry. It, it, it sticks in your mind. If, if that's you, I encourage you to go meditate on Psalm 73 this afternoon. Psalm 73 is David going through that same thing where he's wrestling through those issues. He's seen the wicked around him. They seem to be doing so well. He says in verse 3 of that psalm, I was envious of the arrogant man when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right? I got a a glimpse at his bank account at the ATM and he's loaded. He drives that car and he's got that family. He's healthy as he can be and I keep struggling with these health things. Everybody loves him. Right? But the solution came for David when he went to church. 
when I, when I thought how to understand this, he says in verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery, slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. It was when he came to the temple. It was when he went into the sanctuary of God. It'll be David, so be the tabernacle, same concept. So when he went into the sanctuary of God, is that's when he understood, oh yeah, now I know what's true, and I know that this flourishing that I see is like the flourishing of grass, and it will pass away. And they will pass away. And the envy that he had seen, the envy that he had experienced comes into focus when he, when he came to the realization, recognizing who God really is and what really is at work in this world, despite what we read in the news, despite what we see happening around us, despite all of those things. And this isn't, this isn't exactly what he's talking about here in Psalm 73, but I think there is application for us. That we have, we have an environment nowadays with technology, etc., that makes it so easy for us not to go into the sanctuary of the Lord. Meaning, not to come to church. There's something special and unique about us being together as the body of Christ. And I understand there are times and there are situations where uh, where people are not able to make it to church, etc. But I think this this notion and the lesson we're learning here from David, as we look over quickly at Psalm 73, is a lesson for us today. That because of the fact that we have streaming and you can watch church somewhere else, is not a substitute for us being here. And there are some of you who, who have been streaming who need to be here with us. You need to be benefiting from looking at faces like this. You need to be benefiting from being able to pray with one another, from sitting together under the teaching of God's Word and not being removed te technologically. The time has come for, for some of you to come back into the sanctuary, the auditorium with us as people, as people who are God's people. So the first relationship that causes us to rejoice in thanksgiving to God is the relationship between the Lord and His enemies. The second relationship is the relationship between the righteous, the righteous man, the psalmist, and his enemies. Between the righteous man and his enemies. Look at verse 10. But you, Lord, have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The image of the horn there may throw us for a second. We don't talk like that. We don't, uh, unless you read your Bible a whole lot, that's not a super common illustration. But the idea there is military victory. It's a victory that's been given to you. When your horn is exalted, that means that you have received victory. You have had victory. And here, that victory has been given to you. And likewise, the oil, uh, you've poured over me fresh oil. We talked about that in Sunday school, that we, we don't usually pour oil on people. We do anoint people here at Parkside, and there are circumstances where that's the case. But even then, uh, we're kind of wimps about it. We dab a little oil on people. We, we don't 
you know, turn the jug over and just let it glug all over you and, and, you know, get everywhere. Though that would be a very biblical picture, right? But what's the deal with anointing? Well, there are a couple of different ways that we can look at it and that the Bible uses it. Uh, it's, uh, it's connected with anointing a new leader, a new uh, king, a new uh, high priest, prophet would be anointed, so there would be oil poured on him and, and a ceremony uh, would go with that. And the, the image is of the Holy Spirit coming upon that person, the Holy Spirit being covering that person in every intimate way. Right? One of the reasons we don't dump the oil on people is because of how hard it is to get out. It gets in your clothing, it gets in a, you know, it gets everywhere. You're driving home and it gets, you know, it's it's getting you know getting in your seat in your car. It goes everywhere, right? Like the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of the image that is used there when we're anointing, is we're, we're, we're praying uh, that, that just as this oil covers the person, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in that person's life, right? So that's kind of the image of anointing uh, for, for office. But there's also another image, and that's, that's of uh, anointing for healing, right? Which has a couple of ideas with it. The same Holy Spirit image that's going on there, but likewise, there are actually medicinal uh, properties, or that was the the view that there were certain medicinal properties of the oil uh, being being put on the person that that would help them to heal, actually. And so um, you've got you've got those various images. Well, what why, what's he talking about here when he says you have poured over me fresh oil? Well, I think it's kind of a, a combination of those, but there's a there's an image going on, especially when you look at the next verses, when he says, My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The idea here is that the psalmist has been at battle. And he may have been actually in battle, or just the battle that we go through in life, but he has enemies, and these enemies, there's been this wrestling back and forth. There's been the back and forth of battle between them. And so the victory here is ultimately given to the psalmist when the Lord exalts his, thorn, his, his horn. The Lord lifts him up. The Lord gives him victory. And, by the way, the Lord also anoints him with fresh oil. I, I, I think in the idea that I get, and I don't take this to the bank, but this battle has gone on. And the person has been involved in the battle, and when you go to battle, you get dirty and you get sweaty, you get injured and bruised and stuff like that. But the Lord comes in and the Lord gives victory, and then he takes the psalmist, takes him aside. He's still within earshot of the, the, his enemies losing the battle to the Lord. He's still, he can see them, he's right there, but the Lord is dealing with him. He's pouring oil on him, perhaps to clean him up, to refresh him after a battle. Perhaps to heal him after a battle. You need your wounds tended kind of idea. But it is the Lord ministering to the psalmist after this victory that the Lord has won on behalf of the psalmist. And so that's what's going on. This is the, this is really the, what I call the redemptive moment of the psalm. His enemies have been defeated. The Lord has defeated his enemies. The greater the enemy, the greater his need for the Lord to defeat that enemy. If he is uh, is fighting a guy who's, you know, his size, and he's losing the battle, and he requires the Lord to come in and save him, what happens when he comes up against Goliath? 
What happens when he comes up against a giant, someone more skilled than him, someone, someone who has greater uh, military ability? Well, he needs help all the more, doesn't he? This picture of the psalmist dealing with his enemies points to a larger reality. The, the greatest enemy man faces is his sin. And that sin is such a great enemy that the man cannot himself overcome sin, can't conquer sin. And if he remains as he is, if the natural man remains as he is, he may, uh, he, he will end up dying and he will stand before God and receive just punishment, the reward for his sin. And that will destroy him forever. That's his greatest enemy that he faces. Well, that's the victory God gave us in Christ. Seeing that people were defeated by sin, seeing that there, there's no way for us to overcome sin, that, that deadly influence, it's not just something that we do, but it comes from right in here and I can't get rid of it. The natural man usually doesn't even care to do so and it will lead to his destruction without him even wanting to be delivered from it. But that is that greatest enemy. And so God dealt with that, didn't he? God gave us the victory in that area. God exalted our horn in that area when he sent his son, who was born into this system, born under the law as one of us, and yet obedient where we've been sinful. And went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, for your sin. And that penalty was punished all the way to the death, and he died and he was buried, but then God raised him from the dead, declaring victory, declaring victory for his son, and declaring victory for all who are in his son, all who have faith in Christ. And so we can read of ourselves here, when we say, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. In Christ, God exalts the horn. He gives the victory to everyone who is in Christ, everyone who believes in him. And so we have that victory. That's the victory that is ours. And so I don't know exactly what the psalmist was going through. That's one of the difficulties of interpreting a psalm is you don't usually have a context. We don't know who wrote Psalm 92. We don't know what context it took place in. But because it's in Scripture, because we uh, uh, read it in light of the New Testament, we can understand the direction it's heading. But this is about your need for victory against your greatest enemy, which is sin itself. And so, I have a couple of questions for us. Do you, do you think you will have victory over your sin? and over its consequences by means of your own efforts? Are you looking to yourself to overcome sin and to overcome hell? Your enemy, sin, is an adversary too great for you. And what you need is for the Lord himself to exalt your horn, to give you the victory. That's the only place victory is available for you. You need to put your faith in Him to do the work of salvation in your life and you will find yourself bearing the benefits, the blessings, the fresh oil poured upon you. And if you don't, 
you will find yourself bearing the full consequences and the penalties of sin for your to your own destruction. And so the call this morning, in, in light of this gospel that we're talking about, the call for you this morning is to turn away from trusting other things and trust in the Lord Jesus to save you. And you will have that fresh oil of victory poured over you as God exalts your horn. That's the message of redemption here in this passage. It's not simply about a man long ago who was dealing with enemies and God gave him victory. It's about you and me right now. It's about the lost right now who can hear my voice, who are in need of victory. And the only way that victory can be had is by God himself exalting your horn. So look to him. Believe in him. Don't don't search for another way of victory. You will not find one. You will find destruction. Turn to Christ. Look to Him. Receive this exaltation of your horn, this victory that He offers you at this point, this victory that He has won because of what He has done on the cross. So that's that's the relationship that is is so redemptive that we see going on here is God winning uh, this victory and then giving it to the righteous over His enemies. But there's a third relationship, and this, this relationship is the result of redemption. This relationship is the, the highest point. It's the focus. It's the reward. It's the, it's the place where we really rejoice when we're looking at this passage. The relationship between the righteous and his Lord. Look at verse 12, 13, and 14. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. They are planted in the house of the Lord, in the sanctuary. They are planted. The Lord is the cause of their life. The Lord is the purpose of their life. The Lord is the goal of the life, of, of their life. The Lord is the one who is growing them. And they not only grow, do they? They, they don't just grow. You know, things grow in Fallon, and, and sometimes even if you don't water them enough, a tree that you plant will still kind of survive. And it's technically alive, but it's not really doing much more than growing. But he says we will flourish. We not only grow, but we flourish in the house of the Lord. Those who are in him flourish, and he used the word flourish before, but he talked about the flourishing of grass. Grass which flourishes quickly and springs up, and the sun comes out and it withers. That's a kind of flourishing. This is a kind of flourishing that lasts. This is a flourishing of a healthy tree in a healthy environment that receives all the nutrients, all the water that it needs. This is the flourishing of the child of God, being watered by God, being fed by God, being grown by God. Not just to grow, but to flourish and to bear spiritual fruit. This is the kind of uh, life that, that is given, that, that is productive, it is reproductive. God gives spiritual fruit to His children so that even into old age, even, even when they uh, should be weakening, they're still green with sap, still bearing fruit long after it seems like they should be able to because God has this relationship with that kind of person, this this is the result of the redemption that is ours in Christ. That ongoing fruitfulness. Does it always look the same? No, it does not. 
right? And bodies slow down and, and maybe minds slow down, but God continues to bear fruit within that child of His in spiritual, life-giving ways. That's the result of this redemption that we have. That's this third relationship that is such a fabulous one. This is the this is the reward that comes to us from that redemption, which he also accomplished, is that right relationship with God. What an amazing thing. And you can tell the difference often between uh, someone who is uh, claims to be a Christian but isn't really versus someone who is genuinely converted. The person who claims to be a Christian but isn't really wants the blessing from God, seeks the blessing from God, but not really that relationship with God. They're not really seeking God himself. They're not really seeking Christ and knowing him. They're seeking the blessing in their lives. And so they're focused upon the gift that comes as a result of being in Christ. But he says here that the the reward of this redemption is this blessed relationship that is in every way contrary to uh, the evildoers around him who flourished, but it was like grass. They were scattered. He says, no, here you're going to be planted. What a blessing we have to be in Christ. And so that leads us to uh, what I'm calling the anthem of the righteous, which is uh, the last verse there. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. He's my rock. He's my hiding place. He's my safe fortress. He's the place where I have protection. He's the place where I have rest. How can I have rest in this world? How can you have rest in this world, in this life? Maybe you've got things in your, in your uh, life circumstances, in your family, or in your, in your own uh, body maybe, or different things that, that uh, make it so you couldn't really care less what's happening politically. You've got enough going on on your own plate. How can you find rest in that spot? How can you find rest there? The rest is to be found in the rock, the safe place. God himself who gives the victory, who redeems and gives you such rewards of relationship with himself. God himself who wins that victory over your enemies. That is where there is rest for you and for me. Rest for the, for the weary traveler. Rest for the one who is buffeted by the storm. There is rest to be found in the rock. The Lord is upright. In him there is no unrighteousness. He is altogether righteous and good in all that he does. And we can trust him. Remember, he's the one who created all things. He's the one who does these mighty works. And he is good as he does so. He's sovereign over all things. He's at work in the whole course of the whole world. And as he does so, he is demonstrating his own character. He is upright. In him, there is not even a whisper of unrighteousness. He is altogether righteous and good and holy as he is governing all things. And in him, there is rest. He is my protector. That God is my protector. That God who works in that way is your protector. He's your rest. He's your place where you run to. He wins the victory and he gives you the spoils. 
We asked earlier where we can find rest in such a world. Where, where do you go for your rest? In reality, we're, we're in church, so we know the church answer. Where do you really go for rest? What are the things that you run to when life gets out of control or when you are overwhelmed by your enemies? Will you find eternal comfort in some temporal thing? Shall we look for spiritual rest by some earthly means? Where do you go for rest? The Lord would have us find rest in Him and in His works. He would have us find rest in the profound plan and works of the Lord, who is upright and altogether without unrighteousness. He will give us the ultimate victory over even the worst of our enemies. At His hand, we will flourish and blossom with spiritual life and vigor. And by His doing, we will bear fruit and be full of abundant spiritual energy and vitality, even when we ought to be weakening because of what He has accomplished. We will take as our cry that the Lord is our place of protection and rest. He is upright and all His ways are righteous and true. That is our God. That is God as He reveals Himself in Scripture. That is the God in whom we can take rest. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we didn't have to defeat our enemies on our own. We are grateful for the imagery here in this psalm that that the psalmist didn't uh, just have to uh, somehow accomplish this on his own or, or for himself or uh, he had to find the right way to have uh, victory accomplished for him, to find the right way to have the spoils, the victory that comes from uh, that battle. You gave it to him in Christ. That in Christ you exalt our horn. In Christ, because of what He has done, because He went to battle, because He dealt with sin, because He faced temptation and did so successfully, because He was obedient in all ways, in every aspect, from the heart to your will, unlike how we've been. And then He, who was innocent and holy, went to that cross, went to that place of penalty to bear your wrath for our sin taking it upon Himself to the fullest, expending Your wrath for us so there is none left for the Christian. And then You raised Him from the dead, declaring victory, showing the victory forth, leaving no question. And now in Him, by faith in Him, that victory is ours. And in Him, even this morning, even in the turmoil we find in the world or our own lives, the things that, that would trip us up, the, the enemies that, that we face, we find peace and hope and rest in Christ. I pray that we would revel in that rest. I pray that we would rejoice in that rest. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you want to uh, pray with someone, there's going to be a family up front who would love to pray with you, particularly if you want to uh, find this rest and peace in Christ. If you've been spinning your wheels thinking that you will uh, somehow 
um, uh, dodge God's judgment on your own merits, you need to talk to these people about the gospel. Uh, Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.